0: Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter one. if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, we'll put scripture on the screen for you, and then if you don't have a Bible uh, of your own at home, grab one of these and take those home, or you can just borrow it today if you need that, um, but we'd love for you to have a copy of God's word in your hands, and uh, just be mindful of, of how important it is to have your own copy of God's word, and so if you don't have one, take that home, it's a, a Christmas gift to you. So Luke chapter 1 and we'll start in verses 1 through 4. Let's read this together. It says, "Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that you have been that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of uh, of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things" you have been taught. That's the word of the Lord for this morning. So a few months ago, uh, I got up really early and left uh, to go to my office. Uh, It was about 5 a.m. to finish writing a sermon. Uh, That's when I do my My best work early in the morning. I know you think I'm crazy, but that's just how I roll. And I remember on the way to the office, I stopped at the post office to drop off some mail and did that, and then walked out of the doors, and across the street from the post office, I see and I hear this man going absolutely nuts, screaming and cussing on the sidewalk as he's walking by, and then he proceeds to smash in this storefront window that just completely erupts, it explodes, and then he just keeps walking and screaming and cussing, and it was so early in the morning that nobody else was around but me. So I saw it my responsibility to call the police and let them know what happened. And uh, I called them up and let them know. And they started asking me all these questions about what did the man have on, what was he wearing, what was he saying, where were you, uh, what did you see, what did you hear. I mean, I just gave them all these details. I was an eyewitness. Kind of felt special. I got to be honest. I was an eyewitness, and I shared my eyewitness account with the police officers, and for the next few weeks together, we're going to be looking at the gospel according to Luke, these first few chapters, the good news of Jesus according to Luke, and he opens here by saying that I have compiled eyewitness account. So here's what's going on. We read that Luke has committed to compile eyewitness account of the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus into a narrative, into a book, the gospel according to Luke. And specifically, he's doing so, it says, for a man named Theophilus. Now now notice the title that he gives Theophilus here. He says, you are most excellent Theophilus, verse 3. And this title is significant because it gives us some insight into Theophilus and it gives us some insight into why Luke is writing the book and, and how he's writing the book uh, for Theophilus. This title, Most Excellent, is also used later by the Apostle Paul when speaking to Most Excellent Felix, who is a uh, Roman governor in Judea. And then later for Felix's replacement, Most Excellent Festus, and and so this will tell us a little bit about the, the title for Theophilus, that he is perhaps either a government official or some kind of person of high social standing, And so, Theophilus is a man of means, or at least he's a man with access uh, to means. And so, we see here that Theophilus is most excellent Theophilus, and that it says he has been taught about Jesus Christ. So, he's heard all the buzz about this Jesus Christ. The people are saying he's God, he's come back from the dead, and, and so he's heard all of this, he's been taught all of this, and he asks Luke to compile for him accounts about the life and the message and the ministry of Jesus. And Luke says, I'm doing this in order to provide for Theophilus certainty about Jesus and his lordship. And so being a a man of means and a a man of position, Theophilus very likely funded Luke to do this research and to publish this book. So as a church in Boston, uh, which is a, a major world educational hub, seasonally in our church we have people who are, are visiting professors or visiting doctoral students or postdoctoral students or just uh, students who are, are maybe working in the hospitals or working at Harvard or working at Olin or working at Northeastern or BC or BU, and they're living off of and doing research off of oftentimes some kind of grant. And, and that's really Luke's situation. I imagine Theophilus being this man of means paid for his travel expenses. I imagine he paid for the parchments for him to write on. And those parchments had to be transported. You know, Luke couldn't just back it up to the cloud. He had to transport these valuable parchments of eyewitness testimony. Uh, Luke had to eat. Colossians chapter four fourteen 14 uh, refers to Luke as uh, the beloved physician. So Luke was a doctor. He was a, a physician. Uh, and so in order to finish this massive project in the amount of time that uh, we can know that he finished it, and uh, he had to probably cease his practice as a physician and go full-on devoting this and not making his income. And so Theophilus, man of means, very likely uh, paid for that, took care of that, funded the project. And so we today as Christians are really deeply indebted to Theophilus. And today, as Christians, we are deeply indebted to to Luke for this work. And it is Luke and Theophilus who contribute more verses of Scripture to the New Testament than any other writer, because they also include the book of Acts, which is also addressed to Theophilus. And so we don't know if Theophilus was a skeptic who just wanted to figure things out, or if he was a, a Christian who had already been taught about Jesus and wants to just contribute to the faith and fund Luke to do so, but nonetheless, God has used these words and God has inspired these words as Holy Scripture. Now, how did Luke do this? He says, I have compiled eyewitness testimony. Some of these, he says, are are ministers of the word. So these are uh, the disciples turned apostles who walked with Jesus, saw what Jesus did and, and, and said, here's what we saw him do and here's what he said. Now they're middle-aged men and Luke is consulting them and taking things that they've already written down about what Jesus has said, compiling them together. Others are maybe eyewitnesses like uh, Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, who's now an old woman who very possibly would have uh, conveyed, conveyed to, to Luke much of what we now have in the first few chapters of Luke as the, the Christmas story. As we read on, we see that Luke uh, very likely had some kind of connection with Herodian leadership. And so maybe that's through Theophilus getting him some connection so that he can talk to people in high place. But nonetheless, he, he, he compiled eyewitness testimony, whether he talked to somebody specifically or he compiled previously recorded testimony. I mean, imagine this with me. I- imagine this with me. Imagine Luke sitting down with, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, now in her old age, and he says, all right, Mary, here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to ask you some questions, and you just tell me. So when did you first find out about being pregnant with, with the Christ? Oh, well, well, Luke, it was uh, this angel appeared to me, and I was, I was afraid. Wow, wow. And uh, well, well, tell me, uh, what else happened? And she said, well, I, I was so excited, I, I wrote this song. And, and maybe Mary said something like, oh, and I still have the lyrics written down. Let me go get them. And she pulls out a jar, and, and here's the lyrics, and, and we get the Magnificat. And, 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 and maybe he just continued to get all kinds of information from Mary. Can you imagine sitting and asking people about Jesus and what you saw and just hearing their story? I had a great uncle who, who not long ago passed away, uh, my uncle Horace, who was uh, a, a prisoner of war. He was shot down in this plane. And I remember as a seventh grade boy interviewing him for uh, a report that I was doing and just hanging on to every word. Like, old people can be cool. Wow. And just like writing all this. It was so amazing. Imagine that. Imagine with me Luke sitting down with the, the shepherds and talking to the shepherds. Okay, guys, tell me tell me what it, what happened. Oh, Luke, it was phenomenal. We were, uh, we were out with our sheep at night in the fields outside of Bethlehem, and uh, we, this angel appeared, and we were, we were afraid. And, and, and then the, the sky was full of these angel armies, just as far as the eye could see, it was phenomenal. And Luke feverishly writing all of this down. Can you imagine the privilege that Luke had to talk to these guys and to, to, to compile for a long season of his life just eyewitness testimony? of the life and the ministry and the message of, of Jesus. I mean, what a privilege he had. And Luke says, I, I, I look closely at all of these things that I compiled together, and I arranged all of this testimony in an orderly account. So there's a lot of chronological order that Luke uh, arranges here, but he arranges this detailed narrative of the life and the ministry of Jesus from Dr. Luke, who was this highly educated detailed-oriented. Don't you want your physician to be detailed-oriented? That would be nice, especially if he's, you know, taking out your tonsils or something. Gifted writer. I mean, you read his writing style in the original language, and it is absolutely impressive. This is Luke. Now, imagine this is an era long before, and everybody has video on their phones and it doesn't count unless it was videotaped on your phone. A tweet doesn't even count anymore. You, had to actually, you have to videotape it, right? Instagram has video now. It's insane. Right? This is before that, where eyewitness testimony is huge, right? Where you compile eyewitness testimony. We don't have forensic evidence. We have testimony. We compile it all together to verify the truth. And then the gospel according to Luke is published and, and, and passed around, while contemporaries of these eyewitnesses are still alive, mind you, so that if it was false, they would have said, oh no, <laughs> let me write in the count to say why this is wrong, why this did not happen. But that didn't happen because it's truth. The scripture is historically verifiable. Eyewitness testimony published and passed around. And so for the, for the next few weeks, what we're going to see is we're going to see eyewitness testimony of the Christmas Story, And I want to look at one per week for the next few weeks. And this week's, I want to look at Zechariah. I want to look at Zechariah, the next few verses here. Directly after Luke says, I have compiled this orderly account of eyewitness testimony, he says, and there was this man, the first one, there was this man named Zechariah. So check out Zechariah, verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So she was a, a preacher's kid. You know, you ever worry about those preacher's kids? She was a wife of the daughter, daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so we learn a little bit about this eyewitness, Zechariah, the priest, and of his wife, Elizabeth, that they are this blameless couple. They are this godly couple. They are faithful to live out their covenant commitments to the Lord. They obeyed the scriptures faithfully. They loved God. They were unable to have children because they were now too old and probably didn't have uh, the hope that a younger couple could hold on to. They're just too old now. Now, understanding that they're older in age, we know that this testimony opens with the Christmas story or the transition from B.C. to A.D. So let's just say, for lack of me not having to go crazy into explaining this, let's just say it's year zero here. And, and Luke's account would have been published sometime between A.D. 58 and, and 64, prior to uh, the persecution under Nero. And so Zechariah here in year zero and his wife, they're already a bit older. And so eighty fifty-eight 58 to 64 would tell us that it's very, it's impossible that Luke himself sat down with Zechariah, but somebody did because it says this is eyewitness testimony. Somebody got this information and Luke, who was a good historian, would verify that. He would, he would verify this. This isn't fable or legend or folklore. This is truth. Now, we learn today uh, in, in this passage that Jerusalem is under the leadership of Herod the Great. He's appointed by Rome, to, uh, which is the, the world empire of the day, and so we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, and we've kind of seen these transitions through various world empires, and today the world empire here is Rome, and Herod the Great and his family line has been uh, appointed to be kings over Judea, and he is known as this tyrant leader. He's the worst of his uh, family line of the Herod reign of kings. He's known for killing his wife, killing his kids, killing many, many uh, Jewish leaders. Uh, Herod became known as a, as a master builder, just one construction project after the other. After the other, he built cities, he built, built palaces, he built fortresses, he built theaters, he renovated the, 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 the second temple. And so the first temple built by Solomon, and then we've seen through Nehemiah and Ezra that season, was the second temple. And then he then, Herod, comes in and renovates that. And it was just a little renovation. Let's paint the walls. Let's redo the trim work, redo the floors. It was like massive renovation, massive, massive expansion. So to give you an idea, Solomon's temple took about seven years to build. Herod's temple, upwards of 80 years to, to build. And so the Herods were really concerned with uh, displaying their dominance. I was teaching my kids a new word this morning. We love to to learn big words and feel smart. And so I was teaching them this word, megalomaniac. And they thought it was the coolest word, megalomaniac. Herod was a megalomaniac, just consumed with power and displaying that power. He was uh, a psychopath about his power. But in the midst of that, he builds this massive temple, expands this massive temple temple, and he enables the Jews to continue their worship, which was clearly for him a a political move. And so today where we're at is under that permitted worship for the Jews. Zechariah, the priest, does what is for him this massive day in his ministry career. Check it out, verses 9 and 10. He says this, we'll do 8, 9, and 10. He says, now, While he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so, this is a huge day for Zechariah as as a minister, a priest, a pastor of sorts. Here's what's going on. We learn that his division is on duty. His division of priests are on duty. According to First Chronicles chapter 24, there were 24 divisions of priests, and there's 18,000 priests in all, 24 divisions of those priests. And so each of those divisions would perform these duties twice per year under a 48-week Uh, calendar year, and so there are so many priests that even though it's even divided up into divisions, they would actually, within the division, have to cast lots or roll the dice or do the straw, something along those lines, in order to figure out, okay, who gets to go and to perform these duties? Who gets this privilege? Random selection, they roll the dice, and it lands on Zechariah. Zechariah. Because of the the large number of of priests, this would be a once in a lifetime, if at all, experience for a priest. For me, this would be like as a, as a young pastor in this neck of Boston, it would be like getting asked to go pray at Congress. I mean, it happens every day that Congress is in session, right? Not a big deal for them, but for, it was, for me, it was huge. They had to pray at Congress, and my family would, would, would come with me. It would be this great honor, right? And for Zechariah, it was this Huge honor. It says the multitude of people are outside the temple would have been slammed. They're praying. His family's out there praying with him, his wife and maybe some relatives and and, and possibly even some friends are there to support him. They're from this rural uh, little village in the hill country, just a small, small town. So together they they journey into the big city, Jerusalem, to the, the temple. It's this great, awesome day in the life of this Zechariah. Now, let's read on. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here's what happens. Zechariah enters into the temple, biggest day of his ministry career, and he would go in for the purpose of placing incense into a heated altar. And so there would be this altar, this bowl of fire, and he would drop the incense in it, and then he would have laid out prostrate, and he would have prayed on behalf of all of the Jewish people. Revelation will tell us that there's a bowl of incense of, of prayers of the people, us, our prayers before the Lord, and they rise up as a sweet aroma in the nostrils of the Lord. And so for Zechariah, this is this moment of a lifetime representing his people, right? Praying on behalf of his people. And he goes in, and he performs his duty, and something extraordinary happens. He sees an angel before him. And this is the first of many angel appearances in the the Christmas story. And then in the book of Luke, There's 23 total appearances of angels. Do we believe in angels? Yes, we believe in angels. They're in the Bible, and we believe the Bible. We see that they're created by God to serve God and to to serve his purposes and to speak on behalf of the Lord at times. We see in the Bible that there are fallen angels, angels that uh, have rebelled against God at the beginning, and they are now working for Satan, the enemy. And we see that there are fallen angels angels. And so know this, that just because something seems spiritual doesn't mean that it's right. You have to uh, be careful there and discerning. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says this. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So we have to test the spirit. Just because something's before us and seems spiritual and amazing doesn't mean it's, it's good. It could be a, a fallen angel. But this one, if you test it, you see This one speaks in accordance with the Scripture, Old Testament prophecy. This one is from the Lord. He is a good angel of the Lord. Zechariah goes on record to say, I was troubled when I saw him. I was was troubled. I was greatly afraid, which is this common response you see through the Scriptures when people see angels. They're they're afraid. I mean, you've never seen anything like this before. They were afraid. But the angel says what, as the angels often do? Do not be afraid. He says, do not... Be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now here's what we can gather from what the angel has said to Zechariah. We can gather this, that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth desperately wanted a child. The angel says, you have prayed and your prayer, singular, has been heard. So this must have been Their biggest prayer request, your prayer, the thing that you've been praying for over and over and over and over again, has been heard. They desperately want a a child. It would have been a disgrace in that day for a woman of her age to be barren. And so they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. Let me ask you guys this. Is there anything that you have been praying for a long, long, long time for? Been pleading with God to do this for a very long time? Let this be an encouragement to you. These are older people. They didn't give up, and God is gracious. You will have a son. You will name him John, which means God is gracious. The angel says, he will be great before the Lord. I love that. He'll be great before the Lord. Don't you want this, parents, for your kids? I want my kid to be great. I want my kid to be great before the Lord. In my preparation this week, this line, just it just moved me. It really did. It just completely moved me. Earlier in the week, I was praying for my, my kids, and I was praying a, a prayer that just had never been prompted by the Lord to pray before, but I was praying to God that my kids would do greater things than I would do. I was just praying that, that, that God, would you use them more than you uh, could ever use me? God, would you do amazing things for them? May they see more lives changed than I'll ever see changed. Just do more through them in Boston and beyond than you would do through me. Parents, we we pray prayers like this, praying God's blessing on our kids. We want a better life for our kids, right? And for him to hear that, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be great. Must have been such an amazing encouragement. Can you imagine? Yes, yes, yeah, I'm going to have a son. He's going to be great. The angel says, You will rejoice at his birth. Fellas, you remember? When your wife peed on a stick, came out of the bathroom, and you said, all right, what's up? She holds it up, and you're like, yeah, and you celebrate, and it's exciting. You remember that? My wife and I hugging, laughing, crying, but on top of that, the guarantee, it's gonna be a, this baby's going to be all right. It's going to make it. It's going to be great. Parents, we're already you know, strangely proud of our children, right, at things that other people aren't really impressed at, but we think, it's awesome, go nuts, Can you imagine, guarantee that your child's going to be great? You know, you hear a baby crying at the supermarket, and you're just like, shut the kid up. And the mom's saying, he's got great pipes, he's going to be a rock star. I mean, just, it's strange. Get the kid out of here, right? We're, We're weirdly, weirdly proud of our children, but this is no, this is God saying, no, your child, it's not you. Your child will be great. It's a guarantee. He says, but don't get too cocky. He's going to be a little strange. Right? He's not going to be drinking any wine. We later learn that he's out in the wilderness and wearing funny clothes, eating funny food. He will be a prophet of God. And he will turn many children of Israel to the Lord. That he will go before the coming Messiah, that advent that we are anticipating. He will go before that and he will prepare the people for the Christ. And and Zechariah, you remember Elijah? That kind of power, Zechariah, is going to be on your son. Verse 17, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's that first announcement of the first Christmas. The long-awaited Messiah is right around the corner. Adventist. So John's role was to prepare a people for the coming Messiah. 400 years prior, as we read earlier, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And so as prophesied about, I'm coming to earth, and I'm going to defeat Satan, sin, and death, Jesus Christ, but first, there's going to be a messenger, there's going to be a preacher, and he's going to come, and he's going to prepare people's hearts, have them turn from sin so they can be ready to turn to what? You don't just turn from sin. You've got to turn to something. He's preparing them. He's baptizing them, a baptism of repentance in the wilderness. And they're turning from sin, and they're ready to turn to, here he comes. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Old Testament prophecy about Zechariah's boy, John. God says through Malachi, and then the Lord will come into his temple. And Jesus does. He comes into the temple, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 2, his parents present this infant in the, the temple. At 12 years old, Joseph, his earthly father, brings him into uh, the temple. At the end of his ministry, he does some amazing teaching at the temple. He says, the Lord will come into his temple. And then as you might know, history tells us, 80-70, the temple is destroyed by the Romans. It's, it's no more. Not long after the life and the ministry of Jesus, during the generation of the very first Christians, the temple is demolished. And it's demolished why? It's demolished because its ministry has already completed its purpose. Hebrews tells us now that Jesus is our temple. That Jesus is our temple. And so our, our Jewish counterparts have missed the Messiah. The temple is gone. That's a historical fact. Because, as prophesied, he came, and Jesus is our temple. We need not the temple anymore. We have Jesus. We have Jesus. So massive changes are happening here historically in the spiritual landscape. And Zechariah's boy, John, is going to prepare the people for all of this, just as the Bible had said. And so there's two conception miracles that happen here. First of all, of course, the virgin who will be with child, as we know about. Very common Christmas story. But also, this old barren woman is now miraculously with child. Let's read on. Let's read 18. This is, and Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. All right, let me recount what we read here. And I got to be honest, it's a bit frustrating to me. But at the same time, I can't say that I, maybe we, wouldn't do the exact same thing. This amazing experience in the temple. And Zechariah says to the angel, how will I know this? Any of you like me? Seriously, Zechariah? How will you know this? Your wife is old, and she's going to start getting sick a lot. And then she's going to start getting emotional a a, a lot. And then she's going to put on some pounds a lot. And don't you dare say anything about that. And then she's going to start wanting ice cream a lot. And then you're going to start putting on pounds alongside of her a lot. And then what's gonna happen is she's gonna start asking for a lot of back rubs and a lot of foot rubs. And she's going to start accumulating a lot of pillows and putting them in strange places while she sleeps. I mean, I imagine the angel is a little frustrated, like, how will you know? Your wife's gonna have a belly. It's gonna it's gonna be crazy. How will you know? A Little bit frustrating, right? Biggest day of your career, and you go inside and boom, there's an, an angel. You're talking to an angel. And your wife has a, a stomach now. I mean, what else do you need, right? It's pretty clear. But he says, I'm old, and my wife is advanced in years. Notice he didn't say, My wife is old. That's a good move, Zechariah. He's a wise man. She's advanced in years. And then the angel says what to her? He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of, of God. The Bible only gives us three names of angels. It tells us about Lucifer, the fallen angel, Satan. It tells us about Michael, the archangel. And it tells us about Gabriel. Those are the only names that we get. I mean, Zechariah, you're standing in front of one of the big two, right? He's saying, I am Gabriel. Stop talking. <laughs> you will be quiet. That's what he says. And he makes Zechariah mute. He says, you're not going to talk until the baby comes. Just just be, be quiet. you prayed your entire life for this. And when God answers, you don't believe it. Anybody? You pray for something, and God says, let me answer that. But you don't see it? No, no, couldn't. What have you been praying for your entire life? You need to pray with faith, and when it comes, praise God for it. Now, let me say this. I don't want us to go home thinking negatively of Zechariah. The opening lines of this testimony say that he and Elizabeth were blameless. They were humble, godly, faithful people. They've been praying for a very long time. They have been without children for a very long time, but they kept praying. They didn't give up. So they were godly people. I think it's important to note that Abraham, or or Zechariah didn't pull an Abraham and a Sarah, right? And say, well, I'll just have to go hook up with another woman and maybe get her pregnant so I can have a, a baby like Abraham did. No, he waited. And he kept praying. And he kept praying. These are godly people. Yes, he is made mute, but he is a a godly, godly man. Just struggled to, to see God when he answered a prayer, much like you and I do. He's made mute. He runs outside the temple. And the loved ones gather around. They want to hear about the experiences you can imagine, but he can't speak. And so he starts you know, doing motions. I was, I was here, and, they, and they, they said, we determined that he had a vision. We put together that he had a vision from the Lord. Something amazing happens. goes on, it says he finishes out his duty and he goes home silent but joyful. All the way back to the hill country, back to the, the sticks. Silent but joyful. And here's how we want to round third base this morning. Here's how we start to close. Is I want you to leave encouraged at this story. We just kind of had fun walking through A, a, a narrative but I want you really to leave encouraged, and I want you to see God's goodness in this. I want you to apply this to your your own life and respond in just a moment together in worship of this good Lord. Read with me our, our last couple of verses here. He says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. All right. So it doesn't tell us doesn't tell us why Elizabeth hid out for for five months. We could we could speculate. I mean, maybe it was uh, they wanted to be sure that this was really happening. Maybe not unlike a couple who is pregnant and they don't tell anybody for a few months, or, or maybe they wanted to wait till there was a visible baby bump, so they didn't seem crazy when they started to tell people we're pregnant. And, yeah, right. Or maybe they just wanted to keep all the excited people away because she's old and and they just wanted to make sure that everything was safe and that she could care for this child and carry this child. Well, we don't really know, but here's here's the big verse, verse 25. Elizabeth says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. She says, God is good. God is good. He has shown me she says the shame and the reproach that was upon me for being a barren old woman was removed the worry of not having children in my old age because in that day you didn't have medicare you didn't have hospice and so as you got older if you didn't have children you were in trouble because your children took care of you especially if you didn't have sons Because the sons took care of you and provided for you. These worries are gone. The shame is is gone. God has taken away her reproach. God has been gracious, and you will name the child after that. His name will be John. Listen, Zechariah and Elizabeth are nobodies in their day. I mean, they were just nobodies. They're from this little hick town, hill country town of a few hundred people, yeah, he's a priest, but he's a priest of a tiny, tiny little town, a few hundred people maybe. Imagine church service is like 10, 20, 30, 40, I mean, just 50 people. I don't know, small. And he's one priest out of 18,000 priests. He's probably working a full-time job to pay the bills while the priest in the synagogue. Even more, he's carrying around the stigma, and she's carrying around the stigma of maybe something spiritually wrong with Pastor Zech because they're not getting pregnant. Maybe something's going on. And then the dice are rolled, and it lands on Zechariah. It's a big day in his life, probably the biggest day in his ministry career, and he marches up to the big city. I mean, this is the Beverly Hillbillies go into the big city, you know, and they get to the temple, and he goes in, and he does his duty and he drops the incense that's it that was your whole life right there but it wasn't was it the angel appears before him and says I'm not through with you God is not through with him yet and I know your life has seemed insignificant to you but let me tell you something I see you Zechariah I see you Elizabeth And you are key players in the greatest story of all time. And you and your son are going to be the opening acts for the Messiah, the biggest show of all time. Listen, I want you to leave encouraged. If you're faithful like this couple, and nobody else seems to be paying attention, God sees it. God sees it. God cares. Be encouraged. Christmas story is is full of eyewitnesses who were nobodies. But they had a backstage pass to see somebody, Jesus. It's pretty cool. God sees. Finally, Elizabeth prophetically says this in worship to the Lord. She says something that really God wants us all to be able to say, and that is this. God, you have taken away my reproach. She says, God, you have taken away my reproach, which means shame. You've removed it. It's a very prophetic statement that she makes there. God, you know humble, insignificant, little old me. And you know the shame that I'm in, and yet you just remove it. And they have this big part and the coming of Jesus, and he comes into history. And What does he do? He removes our reproach. He removes our, our shame, and he lives to die, and he dies on a cross, and he knows you. He knows every little detail of your story, whether it's exciting or whether it's boring, whether you have attention or you have no attention, whether you have a lot of friends on Facebook or you have a couple friends on Facebook. God sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you, and he wants to take away your reproach. He dies for you. He takes on your sin on the cross so that if you would look to him and him paying the price for your sin and say, I'll trust in that, not in myself. God says, shame, sin, I put it on Jesus on the cross. It's done. It's done. Some of you today, I I want you to leave for the first time having the reproach of sin and shame removed from you. Where God says there's freedom because you trusted in Jesus and what he has done. You don't have to live a whole life of man, I hope I'm good enough. I I keep feeling guilty and bad. God says no, you're not good enough, period. But Jesus was good enough. He died for you. He took your sin and shame on the cross. Now go live free. You don't have that shame on you anymore. That's the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. She ends with this awesome line, God, you've taken away my reproach. And I want you to leave saying, God, you've taken away my reproach. And much like she ends in worship in this story, I want us to end in worship and just worship God because he has done a good work in our lives. And so let me pray and let's worship. Father, thank you for this story. Just a very interesting narrative. In a situation that it's hard for us to relate with, I know. A lot of us are young. Don't know if we're barren. We don't really quite get the priesthood. I don't get the temple system. We don't understand the oppression of Rome and Herod. But God, I think many of us get shame. We understand shame. And God, I'm so thankful that you don't shame us. You don't wipe your hands of us when we sin against you. But ever since the beginning of sin, Genesis chapter 3, you said, I'm going to enter into that mess. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to take it on myself. As I become a man, Jesus of Nazareth, I'm going to take that sin and shame have it nailed to the cross. I'm going to die because justice has to be served. But I'm going to resurrect to life. And God, I just pray that today there would be people who receive freedom from Satan, sin and death and shame by trusting what Jesus has done. That they, for the first time, could really worship you. I mean, really worship you today as people who have had reproach removed. And God, for those in this room who are Christians, maybe been a Christian for some time now, may we worship you in light of this truth. May the gospel never become stale to us. May we receive it every day as the great news, the good news of Jesus. We thank you for our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.